Morning. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians, the book of Philippians chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some here that if you put your hand up, they can find you. And you can keep it if you don't own one. Um, If you have one of those Bibles, you can turn to page 922, page 922, and find uh, the text this morning, which is Philippians 3, uh, verses 12 to chapter 4, verse 1. This is God's word, and we will read together. I'll briefly pray, and then we will look at God's word. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself." Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is God's holy word. It's a brief prayer. Father, you are good. We are not. Your word is life and truth. Meet us in our need this morning. Show us Jesus. By your spirit, make this book, your word, live to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're new or just visiting our church, you may not know that we have a new pastor. uh, And God's been so gracious, and he's beginning in the fall. And through the summer, we've been going through the book of Philippians. And what was read today is where we are now, this morning. Uh, I want to look at this one idea with you, and that is running. Running. You may not like running. You may wish I chose another image because this is a very rich passage, and there are other images, but I've focused what we're going to talk about on running. In 1981, Chariots of Fire came out in the theaters. Uh, I think it did okay. It made about $59 million that year. Um, The only reason many people know Eric Lydell is from that movie. He was called The Flying Scotsman. And he shocked the world by refusing to run the 100-meter dash in the 1924 Paris Olympics. He was favored to win that race, but he wouldn't run, and he withdrew because the race was on Sunday. And he believed God did not want him him to run on the Lord's Day. Uh, Lydell did make a record Olympic gold that Olympics, though, because he entered the 400-meter race, which he had never run before, and he won. 
Those who knew him testified to his personal love for Jesus Christ. He would later die in a, in a Japanese prison camp in China during World War II. Most people don't know that part of the story, and they don't know that he had a great love for Jesus Christ. If you look at the text now in verse 14, you see these words by Paul. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the call of God in Christ Jesus. That is loaded truth there, and I want to focus our t- time together around that verse. Um, Paul has been deeply personal about his faith journey, and he, in, in three chapter 3, and last week we looked at how he started sharing his faith journey. And he is going to encourage us now to follow him. So the big picture or main point from this running is that we are to pursue Jesus all of our days. I don't know how it's going with you, if you've started the race or not. Uh, You may be tired, things may be good, but we are called to follow the pattern of Paul to pursue Jesus until he returns. That is what it means to grow in maturity. And so we want to look at how we can run the race in maturity. How do we become mature like Paul and how do we finish this race? Well, firstly then, our first point in verse 12, we need to run knowing we belong to him. Run, Christian, for you belong to Jesus. This is our motivation. Why are we doing this? Sometimes my kids say in the morning, they're five and two, I don't want to go to church. (laughs) Why are we doing this? Kids ask that, right? Why do we read our Bibles? Why do we give money? Why do we support pastors? And why do we send missionaries? Well, the motivation for that, the right motivation is found in verse 12. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this, not that I'm perfect. Um, He has a humble view of himself. We'll return to that. But he tells us that he presses on. He sweats and works to make his relationship with Jesus his own, to make it deeper. Why does he do that? Because Jesus Christ made me his own. Jesus Christ made me his own. Paul was a man who hated the church. And Jesus showed up in his life on the road to Emmaus and in the book of Acts, and he was a changed, transformed, humbled man. You and I this morning, if we love Jesus and worship him, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We read in chapter 2 that Jesus laid aside his own glory. The one who made the stars became a human being like you and I without sin, and he laid aside his glory and humbly came to die on a cross for me, for you. He did this and he rose again the third day so that we might be part of the family of God. He did this so that every tongue and every knee will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are not our own this morning, Christian, and that is why we run. Sometimes we don't live like that, do we? It doesn't captivate our hearts or we can get tripped up with our motivations. But Christ has laid hold of you personally. This is a personal thing. Do you remember the time when Christ entered your life? Some of us have testimonies where we came to faith as little children and we don't really remember a moment. Others of us remember a moment. But whatever, Paul has been encountering here the living Jesus. And that is why we are here this morning and why we sing. Tim Keller passed away, if you know that name at all. Very famous Christian, an example to follow really. And at his funeral, which you could have watched, which was on YouTube this past week, 
um, I was reminded of a story he tells once of a Charles Spurgeon illustration getting at our motivations. And uh, you may have heard this before, but why do we follow Jesus? And the illustration is about the carrot and the horse. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. And one day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to the king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or will ever grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect. The king was touched and, and discerned the man's heart. So as it turned out, the king said to him, Wait, you clearly are a good steward of the earth. And I want to give you a plot of land as a gift that you can garden in it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court who overheard this. And he said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what will you get if you give something to the king even better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses and this is my great love and I've bred one for you. This is a gift. I want to present it to you as a token of my love for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, so the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. How often do we, in our approach to God, presenting our good deeds in our heart like the nobleman rather than the gardener and the carrot? Robert Warden was a famous missionary who was like that carrot farmer. He was a wealthy American who graduated from Yale from a very wealthy family. And he decided to go to China as a missionary to give up all he had, and his parents were not too happy about it. Well, he died in 1937, even before he reached China. Many of his friends thought he was a fool, and his future was nothing. But before he had died, he had written this final note that his friends would write, write in his journal, and it said this, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. This is what motivated Warden, the fact that he was not his own and that Jesus had deeply loved him. I wonder this morning, Christian, if we want to run the race with Jesus with no regrets, we need to constantly, daily, remind ourselves that we belong to another. We are not our own. Jesus laid hold of us. And that is an encouraging, encouraging thing to be reminded of this morning. Well, why are we running the race? Race while well, Jesus, he put us in the race. We belong to him. He gave us our running shoes. He gave us our uniform. He gave us our number. He's given us the Holy Spirit to equip us to live for him. Oh, how I love Jesus, an old, old hymn goes, because he first loved me. This is something that should never leave us. And secondly, we want to now look and turn towards the finish line. If you're running, or if you're like me and you used to run when you were a child, uh, the finish line is something you need to look toward. You need to know where it is. You need to know uh, the goal ahead of you. So Paul says, I press on, in verse 14, toward the prize, there's a prize, of the upward, this is a spiritual call, again, you're not your own, God has called you, in Christ Jesus. That's our purpose for running. And so secondly, we are to run toward the prize, straining forward with all our might to the end of that race. God has called us to the goal of Jesus. 
my mom in grade eight, many, many years ago, helped me train for a race, a cross-country race. I did not want to practice for that race. I wanted to watch cartoons on TV and eat food after school, and she wanted to wake me up before school and after school to make me run around the block. Needless to say, I did not win that race because I didn't understand the goal. My mom did, but she couldn't convince me. My two boys who run and love to run, I asked Devin why he loves to run. Well, he told me he's like cat boy, and he's super fast. And <laughs> if, you, if you're at this church, you'll see lots of kids running around. Kids love to run, but they just run, right? At a certain age, maybe that stops. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I once ran a race another time with a girl I was trying uh, to get to know down on the beaches, and there was a few people there, and uh, someone said, let's race. And so uh, she, raced, she started, and, and I started to follow her, and I let her win, although she, to this day, is my wife. She says I didn't let her win. <laughs> but the reason I was running, the goal for that race was to impress a girl, okay? Uh, I ask you this morning, what are, what's your goal in life? What are you pursuing? What do you love? What do you think will make you beautiful? Our world is a world that's calling us to stop racing for Jesus because they don't see it as valuable. They see it as a burden. We are people in Christ who need to be reminded again and again of our goal, our goal. And when we're thinking of our goal, we need to understand what we benefit from it. The gospel has things in there for us too. Even though Jesus laid hold of us and loves us, we also love the fact that we can spend eternity with him um, this past summer, I've been up north a lot, and we've, Danielle and I, we left the kids and got away one night and went to Algonquin Park. And uh, one thing we have in common is the like for hiking. So we found a lookout point, one kilometer trail, but it was up, and I mean really up. And both of us had not been, you know, we took our running shoes, but we hadn't done this in a while, and we were huffing and puffing. But we were talking about what this is going to look like when we get there. And how beautiful the lady at the store said this lookout was. Best lookout in the whole park. You can see the whole park. So with that in mind, we just kept going. Took our rests, took our water. Um, and then we, we finally got there. And it, it was something else. It was beautiful. Well, our goal has a beauty to it, as hard as it may seem this morning. Our world comes to us and says, go after this. This will make you happy. Look at this. This will make you beautiful. It tells you that you can be your own God, and it tells you that you can identify yourself any way you want. And I think that that's so crushing for many people. Because what happens if you don't realize your goals, and you can't identify yourself in a way that brings what you want? It's all on you. That would be crushing, wouldn't it? Or what about the 1% that get to live on Hollywood Boulevard and enjoy the pleasures of this world for a brief time? Most of us will never be able to do that. But the word of God comes to us in Jesus and reminds us that the goal that God has for us is so much greater than we can even imagine. Looking at verse 14 again, James Moyer writes this about the prize and the call uh, and the goal. Uh, he writes this of this verse. Paul moves from striving, suffering, and sacrifices to glory. He moves from our uh, from work to rest here. And this is one scriptural picture after another filled with thoughts that elevate the mind. 
You can think of these verses, the Lord, we will hear from the Lord one day, well done, good and faithful servant. We will be given the crown of righteousness. The righteous judge will award me on that day an unfading crown of glory as a gift. We will be given blood clean robes. We will be in the new creation and the unending presence of our Lord. We are told by Paul in another place that no eye has seen nor ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul does not lay this out exactly in these verses, but it's packed with all of these, the understanding that there is a real goal where we will see Jesus and it's worth striving and pursuing that upward call because who can imagine a place like this with Jesus? The world comes and it has nothing on this. Everything the world offers you, you have to leave when they put you in the ground. But friends, in Christ, there's so much more. How do we do this? How do we faithfully, as a mature Christian, run the race? Well, in verse 13, we're told one thing Paul does. It looks like two things then, but it's one idea. He says this, one thing I do, verse 14, 13, sorry, is I forget what lies behind and I strain to what lies ahead. This is a a good translation of this verse in the Phillips translation. He says this, but I do concentrate on this. I leave the past behind and with hands outstretched to whatever lies ahead, I go straight for the goal, for the reward and honor of being called by God in Christ. When we're running, we need to look where we're going, right? If we look down or we look back, we're going to trip. Running backwards at my age is now very hard. You will fall at some point. Paul is saying, forget the past, forget what lies behind, turn your focus, your eyes ahead to the future, to Jesus, okay? Now, he's obviously not saying, don't ever think about the past. He's just got done telling us his testimony. And when we gather as a church, we gather to remember the Lord, specifically when we take the bread and the cup, and we do that with thanksgiving. So, Husbands, if you forget some important date in your family, don't pull out this verse and say, forgetting what lies behind, okay? <laughs> Apologize. That's not what it means, okay? But you and I both know, especially if you're older, that the past has a way of defining us, it can, or keeping us, or tripping us up, or holding us down. If we look back in a way that keeps us from Jesus, um, and I can say from my own life and own experience, that that can happen, can it? We carry things with us. We carry, when we came this morning, things with us through the door, didn't we? Well, we have a past, and that has disappointment. It has loss. Some of us have past sins that can come up again, and, you know, that can affect us. Some of us have the good old days, right? Like, I remember when a pop cost 25 cents, right? <laughs> I remember when that holiday, that time in my family was so precious. And we don't want to let that even, as good as that was, get us tripped up in thinking, actually for us, with our eyes forward, the best is yet to come Christian. Paul Wolf in his book, Setting Heaven in Our Sights, talks about this power of our memory. It's so powerful, isn't it? And what we need to do is take those memories, good and bad, daily with patience and tears to our Lord to help us to keep looking forward. It's okay to flip through your photo album uh, or photo stream or Facebook memories come up if you have Facebook. I, th I don't know about the other ones, but it's okay to look at them. 
It's okay to uh, be happy about times past. But we don't look at them as if that was all there was. No, we look with gospel-centered eyes. We look forward. If there's a sin in your life this morning that keeps tripping you up, 1 John 1.9 is a precious verse that I learned at a young age from my mom. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Anytime you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so we go over these verses again and again to get our mind in the right direction. Psalm 32, David writes, I was in pain and deep anguish and then I confessed my sins to the Lord. And it just simply says, and you forgave my sin. And that is it for you and I, Christian, when we turn to God. It is forgiven. It is forgiven. We might have a problem forgetting, but it is paid in full. And what we can do with our past is we can learn from it. it we can redeem it. We can know our past, that sin. Oh, I did that. I, I need to do this. That was glorious. That was wise. I want to do that again. And so we can redeem these things as we move forward. Paul says, forget what's in the past and now strain to what's forward. I was thinking of a song on the radio. You may know it if you're a certain age. I don't know who wrote it. Uh, but it goes like this. I got to keep on moving. Ain't nothing going to break my stride. I'm running and I won't touch the ground. Oh no, I got to keep on moving. You're on a road and now you pray it's last. The road behind you was rocky. You looked at me and you see my past. Is that the reason why you're running so fast? Um, keep going. Uh, nobody's going to slow you down. That was Paul's attitude to his walk with Jesus. Even... The wiping away of every last tear and the satisfaction of every need and the righting of every wrong is our future. That's what Paul goes on to talk to us about now. We press on, friends. We stretch out. We lay hold. We keep going with outstretched arms. With verses that remind us of this in other places. Peter says, set your mind on uh, things to come. Set your mind on the grace that's going to come to you in 1 Peter 1. Paul says in another place, set your minds on heavenly things, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is us straining with our minds to think rightly so we look in the right place. Well, we know we belong to Jesus. We know the goal is to run for the prize of the upward call. Now we want to look at how to run. We need to run like Paul. We need to run towards the pattern of the apostles and those who are mature, Mature in these verses means fit, you're race ready, your muscles are ready, you're hydrated, you're good, you understand the goal ahead, you've laid out a plan to getting there, and you are mature. We want to run like that. Paul calls us to run like that in verses 17 and following. We are to run our race individually, it's a private race, right? Each of us carries our own burdens this morning, but it's a public race. And we, it's done in front of everyone. It's done with the church. And Paul changes the I in these verses now to the we. And we spend time here now together understanding that we need one another. We need veteran Christians. Are we not so thankful for Daryl Dash coming to us this fall? Are you not thankful for someone here, I pray, or someone in your life that you know that you can look to and just know you're going to be encouraged or told the right thing? Well, there's a pattern here to follow in verses 17 to 19. And I want to focus on two things, uh, two things here in this pattern. Patterns, by the way, are very important, right? With children, you, you, they just pick up on everything you do, good and bad. 
Uh, where, where did you hear that word? Well, daddy said that word. Oh, <laughs> where did you see that? Well, like we are a living testimony, especially if you're a parent, whether you like it or not, to our children. They are like wet cement, one author says. Uh, I was thinking of snow, and I apologize as a Canadian in August. Okay, I apologize, but I couldn't help it. The illustration's so good. When you walk in the snow and it's deep and you have little children behind you or someone behind you that's smaller than you, you make the pattern, right? You make the step. Can't go too big, they won't make it. Can't go over there, it's too deep. Can't go over there, it's wet. You make a pattern. They follow your pattern, right? One step in behind you. Now, what happens if they don't follow your pattern and they just stay there? Well, eventually those, it blows over, right? And you can't follow it. That's why we need one another so badly, Right? We need to follow the pattern of Paul and one another who are mature in Jesus. It's why we gather for church, isn't it? Well, these patterns here, I'm, I want to break down two. There's more, but the pattern to look like Paul, the things that we should strive for and the things that we should flee. Okay? Paul says to us, going back a few verses, you can see in verse 12 and 13, the first thing that a mature Christian does here as a pattern for us is he has the correct view of himself. He has the correct view of himself. You see in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this. I'm not perfect. I'm a work in progress. But I'm not happy with the fact that I haven't attained it. I'm not happy. It's okay. He's just like that. You ever heard that from someone? It may be his personality, but maybe it's not okay. Paul was not happy uh, with being a work in progress. He wanted to be more like Jesus. And that's why it requires so much energy and effort that you see come through these verbs, all through these verses. Lay hold of, strive, wrestle, work towards. Um, so we need a correct view of self. John Calvin says that the purpose of the gospel is to make us sooner or later, sooner or later like God. And John Piper talking about this striving to become like Jesus, um, it's, it's killing sin, right? If we don't go make an effort to kill our own sin, it will kill us. John Owen has said, but we have a part in that. God has put us in the race, and now it requires our effort to follow and do this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's a song that I still love to sing. We, teach, we sing in our family, but there's another song that goes with that about obedience. O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E, if I spelled that right. <laughs> If I didn't spell that right, you know it's obedience, okay? But the point is this. If you love me, Jesus says, you will what? Obey me, right? Obedience is the very best way to know that you believe. So this morning, if you're not feeling that you belong to Jesus, uh, it could be because you're not obeying him. Because, as one preacher has astutely noted, disobedience and assurance don't sleep together in the same bed. They don't. Obedience goes with assurance. And so, friend, uh, I pray that you are obeying Jesus. Uh, if you don't know Jesus, I got good news for you. If you're an enemy of him, we will get to that in a second. But I need to highlight one thing, more thing about Paul's view of himself here. You notice in verse 15 and 16, Paul has an attitude of being mature, but he's also very humble about that because he is not out there with his sermons and books, slamming them in the air, convincing people that he has to convince anybody. As a matter of fact, we read that if you think otherwise in verse 15, in other words, if you don't understand what the Christian goal is, 
and you're not sure if you belong, or you're wondering how that works itself out, if you think otherwise, Paul says God will reveal that to you. And so he has a correct view of himself, but he has a correct view of the Christian progress of walking with God. Who is it that will grow us and ultimately keep us is God himself. Each of us here are at a place on our journey, our run, in different places. We have different experiences. Some of us grew up with no church. Some of us grew up in Pentecostal churches. Some of us grew up in Baptist churches. Some of us grew up Presbyterian. Some of us non-denominational, whatever it is. Um, But all of those unique experiences, the same thing in all of them is that the way that we're going to become like Paul is the word of God changing us. The light of the word has an impact on us like it had with Moses in the Old Testament. And the more we're in the word by the spirit, we can become more mature like Paul. And so he doesn't sweat it when people are not there yet. That is also something, a pattern that we should strive for. Seeing the power of the word of God and letting God do his work through his spirit through each of us here. Well, then he gives us some patterns to flee from. Some patterns to flee from. You look now, he's going to go on and talk about another group of people. And the Bible is very clear that there are only two types of people. And it has nothing to do with skin color. Okay? There's only two types of people, right? There are those who have a, or are citizens of heaven that belong to Jesus and those who do not. And those who do not now, he shows what he thinks first of all of them. Notice his concern for these people. His concern in verse 18 many of whom I've often told you and now tell you with tears. Tears. I was thinking about that in my own life when we look around at the world and how often that's not what I think of when I think of the enemies of Jesus. But I understand a tiny bit of it. And you who are a parent this morning or have parents alive and are not saved or best friend, you know too because there's people you love dearly that are enemies of the cross. Uh, My boys are enemies of the cross this morning because they've been born in Adam, right? And one of the things we love about this church is that we know that when they go upstairs, they're not just getting babysat. If they were, that would be great, but they're getting more than that. They're getting people who are in the race, who understand the goal, who are there to pray for them and to remind them that they need Jesus and they need the Spirit. And we are helpless without that. And so... Uh, I can send my boys up there knowing that they are being concerned for by people who have their greatest need in the center of where it needs to be. Uh, They are enemies of, of the cross like all of us once were. Enemies of the cross. Well, here are some things to flee from that we can, because we were once enemies, we understand, we still carry the flesh, uh, some things we should avoid. Their God is their belly, verse 19. Their glory is their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. They take what is good and they call it evil. They take what is evil and they call it good. You do not have to look very far in our world now to see that, do you? Right? They, they're, they're consumed with their belly. Everything is about them and it's about the earthly things now. Their mind is always on the vacation, the bank account, the relationship, the pleasure, and it doesn't go beyond the fact that they're eternal souls in the hands of a God who made them and they are accountable to them. They're just living for the now. And sadly, in verse 19, their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. Thanks be to God, though, that Jesus Christ 
was destroyed on a cross for you and me. And so if you're an enemy of the cross this morning, notice what you're an enemy of. You're enemy of that very one saving act that will save your soul and turn you from being an enemy to being a child of God. What you need to do this morning is turn to Jesus and believe. Your race is getting you nowhere. Your sins are real. There is a judgment for them. And God is going to judge. That is why Jesus died on a cross. In our place, condemned he stood. Sealed our pardon with his blood. He is a savior that the world will only ever have one of. He is the one and you need to trust in him this morning. And if you do that, you can move from being an enemy of the cross to being a friend and seeing the power of the cross. For Christians here this morning, like you and I, the cross is not foolish, but it is the power of God until salvation. And we love, we love the cross. Well, we'll move on then to the last point. Uh, that is our destiny. Run with expectation, Christian. We're running knowing that we belong. We're running knowing the goal. We're running like Paul after the pattern, avoiding these other things, praying for those who are enemies of Jesus, loving them. And now we're going to run in expectation, verses 20 to 21. Run in expectation. We are to run as if we have hope. Uh, we are to run as if we are citizens of heaven, verse 20. Citizens of heaven. Now, the Philippians, this is a term that's helpful for the context here, they were Roman citizens. They were given the right to be Roman citizens because in all of the Roman wars, if some of you who know that history at the beginning of Rome with the takeover of the Caesars, the Philippians helped Augustus. And so they were given this treatment as citizens and they were very proud of it. And it's almost as if Paul comes along and says, but you, what are we proud of? You are citizens of heaven. Our, we should be very proud and understand that that is our true home and that is our real citizenship. And so that's where he turns us to uh, the expectations now that come with this citizenship. Well, expectations are a very powerful thing, aren't they? Uh, two people this morning, I just learned, are getting married, right? And that's a blessed thing and I'm sure they have expectations for what that will look like, right? Expectations shape us in many ways, uh, we use expectations and prizes to motivate our children. If you don't eat your beans, you can't have ice cream. If you don't eat your beans, daddy will eat your ice cream. Right? We motivate our children. We motivate our spouses. And sometimes it's not in a good way, let's be honest. Right? Expectations in marriage are a hard thing. They can be. But Paul wants us to see that expectations matter to how we run the race. Um, just on that note, I was at a family function recently and I had a, a, a cousin, just call him cousin, who was sharing a story of the very first time that they went over to their in-law's house to meet them. And they went there and um, this, uh, someone in my family was raised Amish and he got converted when he was 18 and left and they, they like kicked him out. If you know about the Amish, it's not the gospel and it's all morals. And he got kicked out, and he met another relative of mine, they got married, and then, but because he was raised Amish, he kind of expected his wife to make all of the food all of the time, right? And she was a very lovely lady, and she did that. And so if you went to their house, uh, he would be sitting at the table, and she would be doing everything, and then the meal would be amazing, and then she would clean it all up. Now, the, my cousins uh, went in, met, the, saw all this happen, his very first time met, and get, when they left, they got in a car on the way home, and said to the other person that they were dating, you know, I don't know if they were engaged at that point, said, if that's what you expect when we're married, I'm not the girl for you. 
<laughs> right? There was expect, and he said, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't expect that. But expectations, right? They're a big thing. Um, well, let's look at what Paul says here. He says that we are to expect what in verses 19 and 20? What are we to expect from that citizenship? Well, we are expecting Jesus to come. We are awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 20, who is coming for us. In other words, our life is like being in a waiting room. I was in a waiting room this week at the dentist. I didn't like it. I didn't like the appointment. It helped me somewhat. But the waiting that we're talking about here is our life is actually, the best is really yet to come because you're waiting. How many times are you in a car and someone says, are we there yet? And what does that do? Well, it depends how long the trip is and how old they are. But no, we're not there yet, but we're going there. It's going to be awesome. And so our expectations are set here in our citizenship that Jesus is coming for us. Now, what you need to do with people that are really tired in a marathon race, because the race that we're running is not a sprint like Eric Liddell ran. It's not a 100-meter dash. It's a marathon. That's the terminology that's in here. It comes with a prize, but it is hard, grueling work. It has ups and downs and moments when we just want to quit and call it in. And our expectations then need to be lifted on what's coming. And so you tell people that are in that state, verse 21, that they're going to get a new body, right? Who in here this morning does not want a new body? Maybe there's five-year-olds in here and they don't because they love it. They're healthy and young and they have energy and they can sleep. But what about you? You got all the hair you were born with? Do you wear glasses? Is it hard doing your pants up? Is it hard to bend over? Do you have a cane, a wheelchair, right? Our bodies are fading. Our lowly bodies, it says, they're wearing out, okay? My mother died two weeks ago. Some of you knew that and prayed, and I'm thankful for those who did. But this is the thing. She was 20 years with Alzheimer's. She was wasted away, under 100 pounds, lost her teeth. She was not the woman, beautiful woman, that got married at 21. Our bodies are fading. And I have injuries. I know I don't look that old to some of you, but I have injuries. I don't like my hip. I want a new hip. I want a new ankle. I want to be able to run a marathon like Nick Mitchell, right? (laughs) But I can't. Maybe you can't. But Paul is saying here something so precious that's very Christian and only Christian to my knowledge in religion is that when you and I pass from this life, okay, we go to be with Jesus. That's where my mom is. Praise be to God, okay? But Jesus is coming back and then we're all going to get a new body. He is going to give us a glorious body, verse 21, by the power that enables him to do that. And who's giving, who's doing this? The power of the one who walked on water? The power of the one who called people from dead to life? The power of the one who just walked out of the grave, folded the grave clothes, and then went around and appearing to people, eating with them, touching them, probably getting hugs. I don't know. It says when Mary saw him, she said, not right now, go and tell people that I'm alive. But we have evidence It's not wishful thinking this morning that a tomb is empty, that he rose from the dead, and that he's coming back, Paul says, and our expectations need to be fixed there. Because he's going to do something that nothing, no one else in the whole world, and no promise of this world could ever do, verse 21, he's going to transform you. He's going to transform you and I, and we're going to be like Jesus, body and soul like the one who died in our place. In thinking about this, we don't have time, 
but I was reading some books on this. Uh, Randy Alcorn has a book on what heaven will be like. And here are a few quotes about the body in particular. Jonathan Edwards says, heavenly inhabitants will remain in eternal youth. Eternal youth. Can you imagine that? The optimal age for our DNA is between 26 and 33. And some people believe that because Jesus died and rose again around that age, that's how we will appear. C.S. Lewis says it will be an ageless, we will appear ageless, ageless. People will recognize our face, right? We will have a, a redeemed face with new everything, right? And we'll have skin and clothes like all the magazines in the world would be absolutely jealous of because there's no eye or ear has seen what God has in store for those who love him. This will be bodies where we will, can you imagine the coffee in heaven? Coffee, that'll be good. Biscuits, apple pie, I don't know what you love. Will we eat meat? That's a bit of a debate, but you know what? It says we're going to eat. Jesus ate in that body. And uh, that is something that we have to look forward to, friends. And I just want to close with a couple more examples of men who did this, who are now there and would be cheering us on this morning to keep running in the race with expectations on Jesus. Well, Eric Little died. He ran that race in the Olympics, and he died in a World War II prison camp. It was a horrible place with rats and not enough food, and they put all of the foreigners who were in China in this camp along with others, and they were there for years. He was without his wife and children who actually grew up in Canada. He sent them back to Canada before this happened, and uh, there are children that grew up in that camp that were taught by him. He would actually play. He would referee their games in the camp, and he would do it on Sundays, He didn't like to do it on Sundays, right? Remember, he wouldn't run on Sundays. But in the prison camp later in life, because he's living his life for the love of Jesus and the love of others, he would actually decide to ref children's games on Sundays because if if he didn't do that, they would be off and doing worse things. The same year that Liddell died, 1945, is the same year that another famous Christian in history died named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They died the same year. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German who stood up to Hitler. Some people agree or disagree with what he did, but he was involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler that didn't work. He was put in prison, and he remained in prison until his execution in 1945. The last day of his life, the people in prison asked him to preach a sermon. He preached on 1 Peter 3, 1, 3, and Isaiah 55, uh, sorry, Isaiah 53, verse 4. That was his final sermon. After he finished praying, they came in, grabbed him, said, come with us, which meant you're going to die. And the last words he was heard saying to a friend uh, were these. Um, This is the end, but for me, it's the beginning. This is an example to us of someone like Paul who understood that the best is yet to come. Well, this reminds me of my favorite hymn, actually, by Samuel Rutherford that says this. My bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory but on my king of grace, not, on the cra- not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hands. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Friend, are you running to this land? Has Jesus laid hold of you? I pray so. Tired and sore, we must go onward and upward. Let's pray. Father, help us to live lives with no regret. Forgive us when we're not motivated by the right things. Refresh us this morning. Thank you for your church that is meant to build us up. Thank you for your word. May it continue to show us our work in progress and where we need to grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.